Yeah, for, uh, as I look out here today, I see several that probably remember me in diapers back at that point. But I can't tell you how excited I am to be here and how grateful and just honored I feel to be able to um, come and be a part of this church. What an incredible church. If you are visiting, I would encourage you to come back next week. It's going to be way better with PJ back. I'll just give you that right now. But the people that are the church, right? Not this structure, although it's beautiful and incredible. It's the people. And when I come here and, and, and meet people, I am always just overwhelmed by the kindness and the love for Jesus that you all display. So as he said, my name is Josh Luce, Aaron's younger brother. Tony is my grandpa. That's where all the good looks come from. And <laughs> Grandpa, they're laughing about that. I don't know if you take that laughter or I do, but one of us does on that. But uh, my wife, Julie, is here, and my kids, Asher, Lydia, and Chloe, are here as well. And uh, just to let you know, PJ has been a pretty instrumental guy in my life. And I didn't get to have him as a youth pastor, but I did get to have him teach some of the Bible classes that I had in high school. And that actually uh, played in huge dividends for down the road for me. And he was actually the guy that I called in college, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about ministry. If I'm thinking about that, what should I do? And he said, go get involved in church. In fact, the first funeral that I had to do, I called him and said, okay, PJ, what do I do here? How do I do this? So he's walked through a lot of different things with me. And uh, I got into ministry pretty young, actually. Uh, I was 19 when I started working with the youth group uh, because of my family and so much that invested in me. It really prepped me for that opportunity. And got married uh, at 22. And, and in fact, when I got married... We went on our honeymoon, and a week later, we loaded up in our car and went out to go to a summer camp with a couple hundred middle schoolers. And so it, you, you know that you are marrying a woman that is understanding youth ministry and pastoral life when she says, okay, yeah, we'll get back from our honeymoon, and then we'll go to a camp. But to make it more of a home situation while we're out at camp, she had packed all sorts of things in to make this little room that we were staying in just feel more at home. And me, at that stage, I would try to just pack as light as I could. So I think I might have had a grocery sack from, from, from the grocery store that I piled in some things that she kind of cutely smiled and said, okay, and I think probably packed some other things in other bags for me. And I remember we pulled up to camp, and I'm unloading the bags into this little cabin room. And I didn't say bag, I said bags, because there were several bags. She's a planner, a bit of a planner, and she had prepped everything for us. And so I'm putting one in, I'm putting another, and I go to get the other bag and I pull it up and it's kind of heavy. But I've just gotten married and I want to still show her, you know, you chose the right guy. It's kind of a grunt, I kind of pick it up and get it down. And I just made a little joke, what'd you pack in here, weights? And she just kind of giggled and smiled, but didn't really say anything. And so. She went on to get stuff ready. I went on to some of the meetings we were having to prep for the camp. And I come back into the room, and it was incredible, transformed into this, this home, away from home. And I'm looking around the room, and I see all these great things, and I'm so grateful that I didn't just bring this plastic sack with my belongings that she picked up the slack for me. And I look over in the corner, and there were some, you guessed it, weights. <laughs> That had been packed in the bag, and I didn't say anything at that point, but uh, I realized that she had prepared for everything, even some workouts that morning. And so 
So I wonder for you coming in here this morning, what weights are you carrying? Not, not saying what weight are you carrying, that would be another talk my dad can give you later on probably for that. But what weights are you carrying? Because at different points in our life, we all carry these different weights. And we carry them on the inside. And at times, those weights are way more difficult to bear. They're way heavier. They're more crushing than anything you could ever carry on your back. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. You can follow along or we're going to put the screen, the words up on the screen as well. Let's start in Matthew chapter 18 and we'll go to verse 21. It starts saying this. Then Peter came and said to him, now, just right off the bat, let me give you a little context. So right now, Jesus is on, you could call it maybe a road trip, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's heading to Jerusalem, he's going to make some different stops, but he's bringing along with him his disciples. And his disciples think, yeah, once more we're going to get into Jerusalem, Jesus, he's talked about this kingdom and this king thing. He's going to take the Roman Empire. He's going to overthrow it. And Jesus continues to try and get them to understand that he's not going there to overthrow that kingdom. He's going to bring an usher in a brand new kingdom. But this kingdom looks differently. He's actually going there to die for it. So all along the way, he continues to bring these opportunities to both teach the disciples and to teach the other followers that would come and listen to him. And so in this context, in, in chapter 18, they've already journeyed along with these disciples. And in this chapter... They've already had a bit of conflict. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 18, the disciples are actually arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And I'm sure with any arguments like that, probably there are some hurt feelings that come along as well. And Jesus continues to talk throughout this chapter and what it means to continue to work through conflict. What happens when somebody sins against you? How, how do I deal with that? And we get to this spot. And one of those disciples, Peter, speaks up. Whenever I see Peter's name, I know it's going to be good. This is Peter, jump out of the boat, Peter. This is Peter chopping off ears, Peter, right? This is Peter, uh, denial and the, the chicken, Peter. This, this is Peter, that's the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is Peter, that's called the rock. And honestly, this is a guy that I would love to pal around with because he's just going to come out and say what he's thinking. But he's an incredible leader. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, this is a legitimate question, right? As we think through this, okay, that's valid. How, how often can somebody come and hurt me? Can, can somebody come and wrong me? How often can I continue to take, how often do I forgive them? And he goes on to offer an answer. Now, in this day, there's... Uh, a uh, typical understanding that was taught from the rabbis that three times was sufficient. And there's a lot of different uh, speculation on where that came from, maybe from Amos or other spots in, in Scripture. It's it kind of this fool me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Hurt me three times, rabbi says that's it. Like, no more, right? That, that's going to be it. And when you think about it, you think three times, that's, it, that's, that's pretty generous. But Peter, what's he say? How, shall, uh, uh, am I, how often am I to forgive him? Up to seven times? I can just see Peter kind of pausing for a little bit before he says this to make sure everybody can hear. 
Okay, I'm, I'm about to say something very generous here. Let's see what Jesus says. And so Jesus then answers back to him, said, I say to him, I do not, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times. I can see all the disciples kind of lean in like, whoa, thank goodness. I mean, Peter, you're going a little overboard. Maybe we could say four times, but seven, that's kind of a little ridiculous. But what's Jesus going to say? He says, uh, not up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Or maybe your translation says uh, 77 times. And it's kind of interesting because there's some ambiguity around this phrase that we see. So when you look at the translation of it, you see some different numbers. And so you calculate, okay, so is this 70 times 7, is this 490? Or is this 77 times? What, what's going on here? And so you can start to try and do some math and calculate it out. And, and as soon as we start thinking in those terms, we realize we're in the same boat that Peter's thinking on. We want a number. We want some kind of limitation. We want to know how far can I go before I say enough is enough. No more. But Jesus does something beautiful. Because there's one other place in Scripture that this exact phrase is found. Only one other place. And I think it really brings to light what Jesus is teaching through this. If you want to follow, it, it's actually back in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a story that's happening, and you'll remember it. There's two brothers, and one gets jealous of another brother. And as he's jealous of him, Cain goes and kills Abel. And, and God even warns him before, be careful, this, this sin is at your door, it's crouching, and, and if you let it, it's going to overtake you. It's going to be like this wild animal that's crouching at your door. But then the interesting thing is that after Cain kills Abel, he goes off and he uh, starts up this city. And in this city, it reflects much of Cain's nature. It's not a place you'd want to live. And you follow down his family line, and in Genesis chapter 4, verses 19, we meet an interesting character named Lamech. Lamech is an interesting guy. He's actually the guy that first introduces polygamy to the human race. What a, what a start, right? And then from there, he gets hurt. He gets wronged. And as we're reading through Genesis chapter 4, we see there's this little spot where the text starts to look a little different. We see this poem or this song that Lamech has written. Now let's look at what he had written and what he was so happy and singing about. Verse 19 says, Lamech took himself two wives. Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Sounds like a really nice guy already, right? Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. Did you catch that? If Cain is avenged 70 time, or seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. And in this time, numbers have significance. No different than now. We, we operate a lot on tens. We, we say, yeah, when we say rounding, how many were there? We say maybe it was 15, 20, something like that. We don't say, yeah, there was 16 to 24. We, we kind of round in, in those 10 numbers. If, if we say we're going to pay someone back, we say, yeah, I'll, I'll pay you tenfold back. We kind of have those numbers that we would use in our culture. Well, no different from us. They had numbers that had significance as well. And seven 
or 77 times, this phrase brings about this idea that it's immeasurable. It goes on for infinity. And so Jesus is not giving this list of numbers that we stop at. Jesus is actually saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven operates very differently. In my kingdom, there is not a point where we stop forgiving. So Lamech's sitting there and he's hurt. And often, hurt people go on to hurt people. And in our human nature, that runs rampant. Just watch the news for five minutes and you'll see this is all over the place. And the reason is because sinful people generally respond sinfully when they're sinned against. Did you get that? Sinful people generally respond sinfully when they're sinned against. And so that would be the nature that would be all around Peter, that he's understanding. So Lamech, he goes on and he kills the guy, right? You hurt me, I'll kill you. But another interesting thing is that Jesus, in Matthew 5, is speaking to a bunch of religious people. And as he's talking to them, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. And he says, hey, you've heard it said that you should not murder. But I tell you that if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If even within your heart, you're thinking evil thoughts about that person. If even within your heart, you're looking to hurt them or wrong them, even if you don't act on it, if that sits within your heart, then you've killed them in your heart. He starts setting up these, these other standards that seem remarkably different than the world that we're in. And if you think following Jesus is just about murder avoidance, you're wrong. You're going to be sorely mistaken because there's a lot of ways that you can kill somebody in your heart. We do it all the time. Somebody wrongs us, and so what do we do? We go and start to talk to other people about the wrong that they did to us. Because we know that that will somehow inflict pain upon them, or it just helps us to feel better, even though it's painting them in a, in a bad light. Or no matter what that person does that's wronged you, all you can see is them painted through that lens of the wrong that they did. They can't do anything right after that. Or your thoughts turn negative towards them constantly. Or you continue to see your heart grow cold and hard. See, Jesus is saying there's something different. And forgiveness looks different in his kingdom. So he says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. But who can keep that kind of count? But just to make his point, he goes on to a story. And I love the fact that Jesus is one of the best story teachers that we will ever see here on this earth. And so as he goes in this story, he says this, this parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, or your translation may say uh, ba 10,000 bags of gold, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, he commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and the re repayments be made. So just to get some perspective on this, talents was not uh, money traded. It was a unit of measurement. A lot of your Bibles in the back of a table, weights and measurements, you can go back there and you can find this talent. It's listed in there. But the number that he's given, 10,000 talents, was an astronomically huge number. If we were to think of it, and scholars that have worked around this, they're saying that's probably in that day 
10 to 12 million dollars. And just to get some perspective, in that day it took 20 years to earn one talent. That much money, it would take 20 years to accumulate it. The entire tax levy in Palestine at that time was 800 talents a year. And yet, Jesus in the story just said 10,000 talents. So if he were talking to us now and he were telling us the story, I think he would probably say, this man owned a zillion dollars, right? He owned a gazillion dollars. Are you getting the point? His debt was massive. He could work his entire life and then have several other lifetimes and still never repay this debt. So what happens? Verse 26, the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. It's so interesting to me that he just said everything. Because I think that gives us a little glimpse into his heart. He doesn't understand the debt that he owes. He somehow in his pride thinks that he can take care of it. And the Lord, that slave, felt compassion on him and released him and forgave him the debt. This is really powerful. We say, what is forgiveness? I think we see it right here in this verse. The Greek word for forgiveness is aphiomi. And I like it because it sounds like a freer me. Because forgiveness is exactly what we've just seen. It's canceling a debt. It literally means to let go. It's, it's a legal term that I'm walking away from something I'm owed. And so in this setting, this, this man who has a debt that he could never repay has someone that sees him, has compassion on him, and forgives him. He affirms him. He cancels his debt. But just to gain some perspective, because we often talk about forgiveness, but I'd like it to get really tangible for us. So in the remaining time, we're going to stop, and from time to time, we're going to talk about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not, so we can tangibly walk this out just like Carl had prayed earlier, that we not just hear it, but we live it. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is, it means me letting go of my right to hurt you for hurting me. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to cancel that debt. You owe me because you hurt me, but I'm going to let that go. But it's not, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is choosing not to remember, and there is a difference. Look at this. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says this, I will remember their sins no more, as God is speaking to his people. Or 1 Corinthians 13 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. So I can't force myself to forget something. As much as the guys in the room would like to say, yeah, it's, it just, I force myself to forget. No, we just forget. We don't do anything. It just, it just happens. We forget. We forget to get the milk at the store when we just said five minutes ago, we're going to pick up the milk. Whatever it is, we forget. But I can force myself to remember things. We work hard at it. Think back through all of your school days and the time you would spend studying, trying to work on remembering something. Forgiveness is not something that you can't do. It is something you can do. And you can choose not to remember. So what do I mean by that? I mean that you understand what Jesus is asking enough to realize when that thing comes into my mind, I'm going to choose to say, I am making a willful choice to let that go. 
I, I, it means that I am not going to bring this up to that person again once I've forgiven them. I'm not going to bring this up to other people once I've forgiven them. I'm not going to bring this up to myself. As the thought starts to roll back into my mind again and again, I'm going to say that has been forgiven. I like the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. We forgive. We modify our resentment. And a week later, some chain of thought carries us back to the original offense and we discover that old resentment blazing away as if nothing had been done about it at all. And we need to forgive our brother 70 times 7, not only 490, for 490 offenses, but for one offense. How true is that? Forgiveness isn't just new errors that come my way, new hurts, and I continue to forgive them, but it's every time that enemy tries to bring back that same old offense that I have forgiven, I continue to go back to the cross and say, no, it's been forgiven. I will not give way to that. I will not pick that debt back up. It has been let go. It has been canceled. Forgiveness must be ongoing. Jesus is showing this, the number. There's no limits to us. But forgiveness is not, in hearing that, it's not saying that sin is okay. It's not belittling it. It's not condoning the wrong that's been there. It's not ignoring it. In fact, if you want to look through what Jesus says once you're wronged, the verses just before this in Matthew talk and give a clear outline of what we're to do if we're sinned against. It's not ignoring it. It's not making excuses. It's not becoming a doormat and just letting people walk all over me. It's not staying under abuse. If that's the case in this room today, Jesus would say get to a, sa a spot where you have safety. Because until you get to that spot, you can't do the hard work of forgiveness. It's not saying that there are no consequences for that sin. And it's not being unwise. If I lend someone some money and they carelessly go and spend it, come back and apologize and say, I'm sorry, I just wasted that money, can I have more? Jesus doesn't call us to be unwise. He gives us a brain and intellect and he calls us into that. But what he does call us to do no matter what is to in our heart cancel that debt. To in our heart give forgiveness. And we see that played out by the king who shows compassion, who takes on the loss himself and who offers forgiveness. But yet we see this slave, this servant, that lacks true repentance, that shows pride and arrogance through it. So what happens? Verse 28, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Now a hundred denarii, again, no small task, no small debt, no small amount, your, your translation in NIV might say a, a hundred silver coins. Uh, it would take a hundred days' wages to gain a hundred denarii for a, a common citizen at that point. And so this could be, in our day and age, maybe three, four thousand dollars. This is not an insignificant debt, but this debt is insignificant in comparison to what he's just been forgiven of. So as he hears this, what happens? Verse 29, so his fellow slave falls to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Now, I don't know if you write in your Bible or you take notes or you circle things, but if you do, I would encourage you to circle the word unwilling because it reminds us that forgiveness is an act of the will. 
Yes, forgiveness is something we can't do on our own accord. We need Jesus' strength working through us. But forgiveness is something we have to choose to do. Corey Ten Boom said this, Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. No matter what, I always have the choice to follow what Jesus is asking. In this, he was unwilling. He shows us that the work that's happening, that Jesus is asking, is heart work. And oftentimes we think of the heart just as emotions. We think of it just as feelings. But the heart is much more than that. Whenever the Bible speaks of the heart, it doesn't just speak of it as emotions and feeling. It speaks of it also as a choice and as a will. And I have the choice and the freedom to follow Jesus, to follow him with each step and action in my life, with each thought that leads to that. But let's think about this as well, as we're going through what forgiveness is and, and what it is not. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Those are two very different things. It takes two people to become reconciled. It takes one person to forgive. Jesus came, saw the offense that I had, laid down his life, for every sin I've ever committed and offers me forgiveness. It takes one person for forgiveness. But for me to be reconciled with Christ, I have to come to the table and own the debt that I've caused. I have to come to the table and accept that to, for the reconciliation to take place in my life. So, forgiveness is not just wishing the other person would come and be reconciled. I can choose to forgive them even if they have no desire, even if they're completely unwilling. I can still do my part. This just shows his response. He goes and he throws that person in prison. Do you notice the difference between the two responses? So earlier, when he came asking for the same thing in verse 26, he was going to have him sold along with his wife and children, all that they had to repay the debt. In a sense, he was going to have them go into a debtor's slavery. So they would go and they would work, and they would work to pay off that debt. For anybody that's been through college and came out with college loans, you get that. Okay, you understand what's happening there. But this guy, he's completely irrational because unforgiveness and bitterness in our heart makes us completely irrational. Others see it even though we don't see it ourselves. But he instead chooses that he's going to throw him into prison where that man has no chance of ever repaying his debt. Where he eliminates him from ever being able to come and make that right again. It just shows the lack of understanding that he has in his heart. Verse 32, Then summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord mo was moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers until he could repay all that was owed him. I wonder if we could say maybe that living with unforgiveness in your heart is choosing to live in a prison of torture that you have chosen to lock yourself into. Jesus has led the way. He's offering forgiveness. He's not asking us to do anything that he himself has not done. So the, the reality is that you can either hold on to it, that unforgiveness, that bitterness, and let it start to take hold of you, 
or you can actually free that person of the debt they owe you and in that free yourself. I've heard it said that the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. And you and I have seen it time and time and time again. I wonder what you might be holding on to. Because all of us carry a bag around, and we can choose to stuff things in it. We call it our heart. It's what's talked about in the scripture. So as you think of weights, I wonder what weight name would be attached to it. I started talking about something that went wrong and that anger starts to creep up in your head and you start to feel it burning and, and billowing up. Or if, if, if you're around people and that person walks into the room, those thoughts go back to that time, that moment when they did whatever that was and it starts to creep back in. Or maybe it's those words that were said that you continue to remember to this day. Every time they're recalled to your mind, you mull over them and that anger feels more and more, that unforgiveness or maybe for you, it's not unforgiveness in that sense that they were angry. Maybe it's something that just happened. And the hurt is so heavy that you continue to think about it. And you carry it around with you. And it weighs you down. Part of what I did during the sabbatical time that I was telling you uh, in, in the summer is I went to Colorado and I spent a few days. And I'd taken a bunch of books and I was just going to be there in solitude and quiet. So one day I drove up to the mountains and I took this backpack, and I had packed it full of books. And I had a plan that I was going to go find a real quiet spot and spend about four or five hours just there the whole time, journaling, reading, thinking, praying, just spending time alone. And so I had packed this, uh, this Cadillac of Bibles. It's got study notes, my maps, everything. It's, I just thought, man, I can take this whole thing. But, I mean, this thing is about that thick. It's pretty heavy. I packed it in there. Packed some other books. So this is pretty full. I've got some water and all sorts of things. I start figuring out this trail, and I get about halfway up to where I was going to go, kept looking for places to pull aside. And as I'm looking for places to pull aside, I continue to see these signs that talked about this waterfall. Well, that would be neat to see. So I kept going more and more with this book full of bags up to this waterfall. And the farther I went, the more it seemed like the waterfall, the farther it was. But the farther I was walking, I just thought, I can't turn around now. I've gone this far. So I get to the waterfall, and it's beautiful. It's incredible. And I spend some time there. I sit down. I had a little snack because my bag was packed full. And then I had seen that there was another sign. If I kept going on the path, it would take me to the top of this mountain to a lake. Well, I can't not see that. So I continue with this bag up, and the elevation starts getting higher and higher. There's actually it's the end of May, and yet there's snow on the ground. I'm pulse tolling through this snow. Water's running down the trail, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? At one point, I think I should just leave this bag here and get on my way down. But there was enough stuff that was valuable. I thought, I just I don't want to leave this here. So I continue to carry this entire library of books in my backpack all the way up this mountain. And I get to the top. But as I'm walking in the silence and quiet, quietness that was around me, I start to talk and see the things that are going on in my heart. I started thinking through some conversations and some frustrations, and there was one person that's name kept coming back again and again. Every time it did, there was this frustration in my heart. As I thought through it, I, I realized, boy, I still have some unforgiveness that I'm holding on to. I still have this debt with them that I'm expecting them to pay. The reality is they have no idea, but I'm the one carrying it. And I get to the top of that mountain, 
And I go to see this lake, and it's iced over and snow-covered. It wasn't even what I'd hoped. <laughs> and I sit down, and I'm sitting there going, God, what are you trying to tell me? It was almost as clear as day that he's saying, why are you carrying the backpack? Why are you carrying the weight? I have come so you can live life freely, lightly, and yet you think you know better and you continue to carry this along with you no matter where you go. And it's weighting you down, it's eating you up, it's taking away the joy that I come to give. And so as I walk back down, I continue to think and process through this, and as I'm Processing through this, I think I gotta I gotta dig in the scripture and see what this is talking about. As I continue digging the scripture, um, I'm reading. I randomly come across this story, and it's incredible. It's about a guy named Chris Carrier. He's 10 years old. He lives in Florida, and it's the day before Christmas. He gets out from school. As he gets out from school, he gets off the bus, and this guy comes up to him, asks him if he's his father's son, says the name. He says, "Yes, I am." So he says, hey, I'm, I'm decorating for this holiday party for your dad. Would you come help me? He just assumes it's one of his dad's friends. So he hops in the car and he goes. Little did he know that this man was fired from watching, caretaking for his great uncle six months ago. And he held a grudge against this boy's father. And this boy didn't know it. But after he drove up into North Miami, he pulled over and went to the back of his car and got an ice pick, intending to murder this kid. 10 years old. And after that didn't work, he drove out to the Everglades, walked him out, and he told him, I'm going to let you off here, and I'll call your dad. He can come pick you up. When he had asked him, why are you doing this? He said, your dad owes me a lot of money. So he goes and takes the, the, to the bushes, and little did he know, as he turns around, he's got a gun. This boy gets shot, and he doesn't realize it, but six days later, he wakes up, being there completely unconscious. Uh, sequence of events follow. The sheriff ends up finding him, taking him to a hospital. They start to repair him. They f ask him to draw a, a sketch or talk through what th this person looks like. So they draw through, he talks through this, and the police uh, officer does a sketch up, and one of his family members recognizes this looks like David McAllister. So they bring a lineup, but for whatever reason, he was not able to identify him in that time. David goes completely scot-free. He, meanwhile, is in a hospital recovering. Miraculously, the only thing that happens as the bullet goes through and exits out his right temple is that his left eye is no longer working. It's miraculous. And he continues to go through his life, now carrying the debt that has been wronged to him. Down the road, 77 years old, in a retirement home, David McAllister is dying, and a police officer gets... Uh, word on it, and once one more time to try and understand if there would be a confession. So they go and they talk to him, and he confesses to dropping him off in the Everglades, which was enough to close the case. But it wasn't going to get him any prison time. It wasn't going to get any kind of justice for what had been done. So what does Chris do? He grabs a pastor, and he goes in to meet with David. As he walks in and they talk, he tells David, I've forgiven you. And as he's holding his hand, he said, I've forgiven you. And this man begins to melt from the weight that he's been carrying his entire life. And as he walks away, he says, sleep well. And David says, for the first time ever, I will. And he goes on and he continues over that next month. He grabs his wife and his two daughters and he comes back and continues to visit. David, 
before he dies, was being interviewed by CNN. He said that Chris had become one of his best friends. In the absence of any family that would come around him, in the absence of any friends that were ever there, the one that stood in the best position to completely lend unforgiveness to this man was the one that showed him the most beautiful example. Listen to what Chris says in his own words. He says this. I visited often introducing him to my wife and two girls, offering him hope and some semblance of family in the days before his death. Less than a month later, I shared the gospel with him and he trusted Christ. He was always glad when I came by. I believe that our friendship eased his loneliness and was a great relief to him after 22 years of regret. He told reporters from CNN, I was the best friend he'd ever had. And while many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister, from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. If I had chosen to hate him all these years or spent my life looking for revenge, then I wouldn't be the man that I am today, the man that my wife and my children love, the man that God has helped me to be. So as we see this passage coming to a close, we see that sometimes Jesus would tell a parable, it would kind of be ambiguous. You wouldn't quite understand it. Later he would maybe give some understanding to his disciples. And then sometimes he would tell a parable and you knew exactly what his point was. And we see that in this parable here. Verse 35, he says, My heavenly Father will do exactly, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I really wrestled with this. What's he saying here? What he's not saying is that somehow you earn your right for forgiveness by offering God something. You can't earn anything. But what he is saying is that my adoption, my salvation into God's family has to do with repentance, with acknowledging and owning my sin and understanding his unbounded, innumerable amounts of forgiveness. And of taking my debt on. What of, and when I do that, what he's done for me, that gives me the reality to continue to give forgiveness in my life. This story we've just read is incredible to me because the one that's been given so much, and forgiven so much, is unwilling to forgive so little in comparison. Forgiveness is not easy. And it will come with a price. It's something you give up. But it's God's standard. Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive each other just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. He restates that again in Colossians 3 verse 13. His standard is to forgive as he's forgiven. To forgive others the way that you have been forgiven. And one of the marks that shows you are a child of God is the forgiveness that you continue to extend to others in this life. Forgiven people forgive people. Jesus tells us to carry our cross daily. And you can carry a cross, or you can carry a grudge, but you can't carry them both. So the question I have for you today would be, what are you carrying? And maybe today, as you examine your heart, it's the time to fear me. It's the time to release it and let it go. And understand what Jesus talks about when he says, you will live freely and lightly. My burden 
is a beautiful one to carry. The burden that we carry in this world is not. The burden that we think we should carry on our own strength is not. So the question I have would be, what do you do with this here? John 16, 33 promises us that these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Or as my daughter would say it when she was younger, in this world you will have trouble, but take your heart, God came into this world. So true. So you're going to get hit with some kind of hurt. I guarantee it. The question is, what will you do with that hurt when it comes? So as we close out the service today and we sing a song, I'm going to encourage you to do one of a couple things. Maybe right now it's time to examine your heart and just say, God, what am I carrying that I should not carry? And in willful act, I'm going today to release that to you, God. Help me to forgive. I want to forgive. Others of you, it may be bringing up things that you realize, I need to go make this right. I need to offer an apology for what I've done because someone else may be carrying a debt they shouldn't carry because of me. Or for some of you, it may be realizing, okay, this world's going to have trouble. Right now, I feel like I'm, I'm walking lightly, like I'm not carrying grudges, like I'm letting Jesus have his way and depending on his strength. But for me, maybe at some point, this is going to come. And I want to remember the truth of this. And maybe it's spending time going, God, help me to be that servant of yours that puts no number on forgiveness, but continues to extend and offer it freely without any bounds. Because in that way, it gives us the opportunity to model what Jesus has modeled. To understand and to divvy out that deep, rich, refreshing grace and forgiveness. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. It's truth in our lives. Jesus, we don't just want to hear this, so we ask that in these few moments before we leave, would you speak into our hearts? Even this week as we walk through it, would you talk to us about the things in our hearts that don't follow your ways? God, about the things that we carry that you're asking us to release, to let go. God, we want to be your people and shine your light to the world around us. God, we want to be full of grace, extending mercy and forgiveness in the same way that you have so graciously extended that to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.